Secretary of State Antony Blinken visits Saudi Arabia this week with normalization between the kingdom and Israel high on the agenda. Can the Biden administration save the U.S.-Saudi relationship and deliver historic Middle East peace? We'll break it all down with Princeton professor Bernard Haeckel and venture capitalist Yitz Applebaum. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insiders Podcast. Welcome back to Jewish Insiders Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg, joined by my co-host, Jared Bernstein. Let's get right to our program this week. Bernard Haeckel is a professor of Near East Studies and director of the Institute for Trans-Regional Study of the Contemporary Middle East at Princeton University. He was awarded a Fulbright Fellowship in Yemen back in the early 1990s, obtained a bachelor's degree in international politics from Georgetown a master's and PhD in Islamic and Middle Eastern studies from the University of Oxford and a Guggenheim fellow back in 2010. Yitz Applebaum is a co-founder and partner at Mizma Ventures. He has 30 years of experience in entrepreneurship, venture capital, and philanthropy across the Middle East and the United States. He serves on the boards of the Western Wall Heritage Foundation, the Republican Jewish Coalition, the Asia Society. He is a trustee of Smithsonian's Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden, a member of Young President's organization, and the founding board member of Him for Her for Him, which assists in the placement of women on corporate boards of directors. He is also, by the way, Jewish Insider's wine connoisseur, and we will talk about how that all relates to Saudi Arabia in just one moment. But in the meantime, Professor Yitz, welcome to the podcast. It's lovely to be here. Great to be here. So let's start with the big news of the week, obviously. You know, we're somewhat of the insiders of Washington, the foreign policy junkies. We're all focused on Anthony Blinken being in Saudi Arabia this week and what it means. But the rest of the world seems to be focused on live golf. So, so let's start there. The new upstart professional golf league, obviously backed by the Saudis, uh, and the PGA now merging. Huge news. Uh, you saw head of uh, PGA, uh, uh, head of the PIF, uh, the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia, on CNBC together next to each other, breaking the news together, talking about how they're singing Kumbaya and coming together. Big big coup, I would say, for, for the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund uh, and its uh, governor, uh, I'll say to both of you, Yitz, you, you, you obviously uh, know Yasser al-Rumayan fairly well, uh, Professor, I think you do as well. Uh, start with Yitz, what, what, what does this mean? How did he pull this off? Well, first, I think it's extraordinarily good news. Uh, and I think when you take vision and entrepreneurship and capital and desire and you add it all together and you kind of mix it up with what's going on in the world today, you're seeing, you're seeing just a, a remarkable outcome. This is something the Saudis, when they started, from my perspective, and I'm not a golfer, I need to make that clear. When they started, they said, we want to do this in a partnership theme. We think that the world is big enough. There's just one PGA. Why can't we create some competition, do some things together, uh, and really spruce the sport up and make it more available globally, right? Saudi's doing so much today in the sports world, as you see, of course, in soccer as well. 
And this, I think it just took the PGA a little bit, a little bit more time to figure it out. And the Saudis came with lots of peace offerings, I, I believe, and made it very, very attractive to the PGA. And so I think you're seeing an outcome that's good for the world. It's good for the golf world. And it shows a little bit uh, of how the, the Saudis are able to really put these things together in a package and get people to come together. So uh, I'm very, very optimistic. So, so Bernie, to you, I mean, that makes all the sense in the world, Yitz, but my question is, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of PGA golfers who didn't join Live like left a lot of money on the table and and sort of like stood on quote principle air quotes for our listeners, um, and then all you know, just a few short months later, all of a sudden they're now part of it, having left a ton of money on the table. What does that mean for for them, and what does that mean for you know the PGA as a whole? So um, again, I'm not a golfer. But what I understand is this, that um, the Saudis, I mean, Yasser Ramayan himself is a golfer, but the Saudis basically saw an opportunity. um, And this opportunity presented itself to them from some of the professional golfers themselves who were, um, I'm told, tired of a kind of moribund, uh, fuddy-duddy-like organization, which they considered the PGA to be, and they kind of wanted to liven it up. And they also, forgive the pun, but also they wanted to um, get, uh, you know, higher higher pay, more, you know, great, bigger salaries, you know, like in basketball and soccer and football. And so um, that corresponded pretty well with what the Saudis wanted, which is to um, not sports wash because everyone talks about sports washing. I don't think the Saudis actually care about uh, what your average Westerner thinks, um, you know, about their human rights record. What I think they do care about is the image of Saudi Arabia as this dynamic happening um, place that uh, where, you know, you can invest, you can visit as a tourist. So the branding of the country um is very important. And they realize that golf is a very important sport for Western elites and also Chinese elites and Japanese elites and so on. And, and, and so having a, a hand in that world, which also combines with the business world is extremely important for the, um, the kind of the business model that Saudi Arabia wants to pursue. And they were able to finally get the PGA on board uh, and to unite with this new kind of revamped, presumably much higher salaried um, um, league um, uh, for, for golfers. So, so the, the Kavod factor, the Kavod factor, went out here. In short, yeah, yeah, not. And I'll, I'll add that if you look at what they're doing in soccer, and I've spoken to many people in Saudi about this, their diabetes uh, rates are down, their health rates are up, their weights are down, because what they've actually done is, and this is more for soccer or football, but I'm sure it'll be true about golf, they've gotten their 36 million people, of which 75% are under the age of 35, to go out into the soccer fields and play two hours a day, and they have heroes and people they look up to. So I, I know that this is part of an overall strategy that they have in the kingdom, uh, to really uh, enhance internal, not only, as the professor said, of course, their external um, uh, views, but also their internal uh, views as well and the way they... The way they, yeah. they- yeah, I to- I totally agree with Yitz on this. So, I mean, one of the things that we're seeing in Saudi Arabia is a shift um, in national, in, in, in emphasis on nationalism as the core of the identity of the country. And sports, sports play an extremely important role in the promotion of Saudi nationalism, 
You see the same phenomenon, by the way, happening in countries like Qatar and other countries. Uh, so it's not unique to Saudi Arabia, but sports not only has health benefits, but it also reorients the youth who are obsessed with soccer in particular, but other sports as well, uh, from, say, you know, the attraction that Islamism might have or other forms of identity politics. So it is it definitely has this domestic dimension as well. I want to zoom out now uh, to the more macro 30,000 foot of U.S.-Saudi relations where we're at. Obviously, I mentioned at the top, Secretary Blinken in Saudi Arabia this week uh, follows last month's visit by the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan. All in the background, a lot of different narratives, the U.S.-Saudi relationship, the possibility of Saudi-Israel normalization. Uh, great power competition and where Saudi Arabia is lining up as a rising middle power with the United States and China as, as two great powers uh, for, for the century. Uh, Professor, start with you. Do we start with the premise that many people have in Washington that the U.S.-Saudi relationship today is in trouble? Is, is that a correct, accurate premise? And what does it mean if the U.S.-Saudi relationship is in trouble? Uh, so the the relationship has had ups and downs, but yes, I mean, if you had asked me this question in October of last year, I would say it's in dire trouble because the Saudis didn't want to have any communication with any you know any official communication between their administration and the Biden administration, largely because um, you know after a decision on oil production, the Biden administration said that they're going to have a reassessment of the entire relationship and come up with a report. Uh, about this and the Biden administration never act. I don't know whether they actually ever did the assessment and this, the report certainly hasn't come out. So the Saudis then uh, facing this kind of repeated signaling from Biden, from the Biden administration, in, in, both insults uh, as well as um, threats, uh, both veiled and, and unveiled threats. Saudi said, we're not having any to do with the, these people anymore, which was, you know, a very serious situation and, uh, late fall, early you know winter. I think it's gotten a little bit better now, largely because it seems to me that the Biden administration has sort of matured a bit about the nature of a cer- certainly you know global politics when it comes to energy, the importance of Saudi Arabia for the stability and the core interests interests of the United States in the region. So I think the U.S. is trying to make better. And by the way, Rich, just to um, I do want to signal that you wrote a brilliant piece in Mosaic on the uh, Saudi-U.S. relationship, and I think it's one of the best pieces I've read on on this topic. One that your uh, listeners ought to ought to read. Um, and you know, clearly now the U.S. is trying to 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 backtrack and to make good. Whether you know enough w- will happen, I'm not sure because, as you know, in the U.S., the Congress also has a say over arms sales, for example, and, and other matters. So it's not entirely in Biden's hands. Um, and, the, and the Saudis are, I mean, they would prefer to have a superb relationship with the United States. And we're kind of pushing them away uh, towards China and, and, and other countries, including the Europeans, by the way. And this will have effects where, you know, if we really, you know, make it difficult, they will start buying more weapons from the British and the French. Uh, and not just the Chinese. I guess as a, it's a perfect segue, Bernie, because we wanted to talk a little bit about this uh, this tilt towards China. And I guess this is a question for both you and Yitz. Is this tilt towards China from Saudi Arabia 
Uh, is it a head fake? Is it a hedge? Is it for real? Uh, is it all of the above? Um, what do you what do you make of it? Look, the way I see it is that um, the Saudis have a real problem with Iran. Okay, they can't get on with the Vision Twenty Thirty plans. They can't attract foreign investments. They can't do the stuff they want to do, which is essentially to diversify away from their dependence on oil, right? So they're in a race against time, the Saudis, like other countries, by the way, and companies. You know, if you talk to British Petroleum or Total Energies, they're all trying to reinvent themselves as as something other than what they are. So the Saudis are doing the same thing. And, and they can't do this as long as the Iranians send drones and missiles and just, you know, threaten to destroy their oil installations and ruin the tourism industry, etc. So the Saudis sort of thought, okay, how do we contain Iran? Clearly, the French, the Americans, the British have very little leverage when it comes to Iran. But the Chinese might have leverage. So why don't we test and see what the Chinese can do for us? given the mutual interest that we have with China. China, after all, has very similar interests, at least, in the, at least in the short term, as the United States does in the Middle East, which is that it wants a reliable and steady uh, uh, supply of energy from that region to, 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 to the rest of the world. So let's try to see if the Chinese can, can contain the Iranians and have a detente with the Iranians, not a rapprochement. There are no illusions in Riyadh as to the nature of the Iranian regime. And I think we're in a test phase where um, they're, they're, the Saudis are trying to see if that's, you know, the Chinese have some leverage. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I think the jury is out on that. I don't think we know, you know whether the Chinese have that kind of leverage. And I think the Saudis also are not sure uh, as well. Um, but they really do want the Iranians to stop the, um, the kinds of acts that they engage in, either directly or through proxies. And and that's something that I don't think is entirely appreciated by all members of the Biden administration. I think some members of the Biden administration feel that, you know, we should come to the nuclear deal. We should give them all this money that they don't have and they'll behave. The Iranians will behave. And, you know, from the last JCPOA deal in 2015, we saw that the Iranians did not behave. In fact, much of the money that was sent to them was then rerouted to all their proxies in the region. Um, so... You know, the Saudis need to convince those members of the Biden administration that, you know, the Iran regime has to remain under significant pressure for for the foreseeable for the foreseeable future. And, and, and I would sort of add to what the professor is saying, but uh, just from a little bit of a different uh, perspective. And that is, I, I think and I, I read unlimited uh, articles and stories uh, around Saudi, what do they think? What does America think? What does Israel think? What does everybody think? And every day, it's a different story. It's a different approach. No one really knows. I I actually think that the people who really know are the leadership of Saudi. That's what I believe, and I believe that they're going to do what's best for the kingdom. And I and I've heard this many times over that twenty thirty vision twenty thirty is an objective that they're going to meet and beat. And in order to meet and beat that objective, they need to get their businesses up and running. They need to get their SMEs. They need to get their venture capital. They need to get the politics. They need to get Iran. And when and when a, a missile comes over and hits Jeddah during during the F1 race, as happened last year, that takes them off their objective in a huge way. And so I think that we really can't understand. I think the Saudis are going to package things up in a way and they're going to approach the world and say, we've talked to China, we've talked to Iran, we've talked to Hezbollah, we've talked to Hamas, and we understand how to work with them such that we can keep on this path and bring 
peace uh, bring stability to the region. They're the, they're the, in my opinion, the 800 pound gorilla today in the region and moving that way even globally. And so ostensibly they're gonna pick their objectives, they're gonna pick their goals and then try and bring people along with them. And that's kind of how I see what's going on today uh, in Saudi. I do sort of have one follow-up question on, on the China piece here, and that is, and yet you kind of tweaked this out a little bit, teased it out a little bit, that, that is this Saudi-first mentality that that we heard in our last trip um, that, that I was there just the last month. It, it felt like Vision 2030 is the objective, is the goal. Anything that helps us get there is is in our interest. If it's with the U.S. and the U.S. wants to help us get there, it's great. If China wants to help us get there, it's great. If the Europeans want to help us get there, whoever's going to help us get there, that's what we're, and what we need to do to get there is what we're going to do. Uh, whatever the de-escalation deals with Iran, et cetera, uh, is that is that it? Do, do does the crown prince understand that there could be red lines within that approach for the United States when dealing with China? That just because something may, in the short term, be in the interest of Saudi Arabia to do something with the Chinese, it may open up a strategic line of effort that becomes too sensitive for Washington and inhibits closer relations with Washington. Is that education level there inside the royal court? I'll take a quick shot at this, Professor. I, I absolutely believe that is the case. But I, I know what we all know. I know that the Saudis know this because they're under more of a threat from Iran than almost anyone else in the world, if not more than anyone else in the world. They know that the deal that came down with the United States didn't solve the problem. That's that's obvious. They know that the Chinese are dependent on them for oil, right? Lots of it. And in order to try and bring stability, I believe that I believe what the Saudis did here is said, OK, it didn't work with the United States. The Chinese have common interests with us. Let them take a shot at it. And so I think that what they're doing here is actually quite logical. Um, and yes, it's driving towards their goal of 2030. But they're trying to do it not just from a Saudi first perspective, what's good for Saudi, but if there's peace with Iran between Saudi and the rest of the region and they bring other groups in, then everybody wins. And I believe that that's how they're looking at this. Yeah, I mean, I'll take a stab at this. I, I do think the Saudis understand that there are red lines. Um, I think that where the Saudis would want the relationship to be is to be at a profoundly strategic level. You know, they want NATO-like, you know, a relationship with the United States. Um, what, what bothers them is the kind of... The, the cyclical nature of electoral politics where you end up getting, you know, uh, partisanship in dealing with Saudi Arabia. They also, what they don't appreciate, and this is true for both Republicans and Democrats, are the, are the kind of gratuitous, um, you know, name calling, the kind of insults. And this was, by the way, true of President Trump as much as uh, it is true of, of President Biden. Um so, so, and they also realize that their military is deeply interconnected with uh, the U.S. and can't be swapped out anytime soon. It would take a generation for that to happen. And that most, all their elites are, you know, Western-educated, American-educated. So, you know, whenever I uh, am asked the question about, you know, how important is the United States to Saudi Arabia, I say to people, well, where, where do Saudis invest their money when they're not investing it in Saudi Arabia? right? It's all in the United States, pretty much, right? So they are very, uh, I mean, they vote with their money, they vote with their feet when it comes to education. And, you know, the the dollar is still the, uh, you know, the currency of, 
of uh, of oil sales. Um, they, you know, if they were to stop selling their oil in dollars, that would be a clear sign of a profound structural break in the relationship. Uh, and that's not going to happen, I don't think, anytime soon. And we, we talk about the profound type of strategic relationship uh, that uh, that is on course here. Obviously, this idea of normalization between Saudi Arabia uh, and Israel uh, being being talked about as well. And Professor, it struck me when you talked about the the whiplash that that the Saudis feel on on our electoral politics. Obviously, we are a democracy. This has always been our our electoral system. Uh, we like it. Uh, but when there becomes partisan divides over key issues, especially in foreign policy, which is a more recent phenomenon in, in American politics, uh, particularly in the last 20 years, uh, you do start having this problem for allies. We see this in the Iran context. We see this in the Israel context. Now we have it in the Saudi context. I wonder, though, does that not make a pretty strong, compelling argument that if there's going to be an upgrade to the relationship, if there's going to be some historic breakthrough on on Israel ties, that it should happen under a Democratic president so that the Democratic Party underneath that leader of the party, you know, sort of gets sold on a new generation and a new a new narrative of, of U.S.-Saudi relations rather than waiting for a different president that, that may or may not come. Doesn't look like they're waiting to me. Looks like there's a lot of activity back and forth. Looks like uh, I believe that they would be very, very happy to do this under a democratic uh, regime because then you'd have, you know, every U.S. Uh, senator outside of maybe from Kentucky, Republican senator uh, would vote for it. And you'd have, uh, if anything, it would then have a basis for what would be a peace agreement and rapprochement and all of that. But then the from there, it would only be upgraded going, you know, into the future. So I have heard many times from people inside they would love to do it. Uh, under this current administration, if they can get it done. You know, what's remarkable about MBS, as opposed to almost any other Arab leader that I've met, um, is that he is, uh, I haven't sensed any anti-Semitism with him at all, uh, nor have I ever sensed a kind of deep desire to think of Israel as a foreign body in what is otherwise an Arab and Muslim world, right? So he's perfectly comfortable with the fact that Israel exists and it will continue to exist. And he doesn't seek to, to, to change that reality, um, which, by the way, is very unusual. OK, it's that's not been the norm in the, in the Arab world, uh, you know, including in countries where that have made peace and normalized with Israel, like Egypt, for instance. Um, so so I, I think he, he would want to normalize, but it comes at a cost that has to be borne by the United States. Okay, the US has to do certain things. And that's where I don't, I'm not sure whether Biden or frankly, any other president can deliver. Um, but you know, every other Arab country that's normalized with Israel has done so and gotten something for it from the Americans. Um, so that's, that's key. But I, I think, you know, just beyond the question of normalization with Israel, which I know is important, the the really profoundly important thing about MBS is actually bigger than Israel, which is that he's normalizing with the West. I mean, he is shutting down Islamism completely as a political ideology. He does not want there to be the use of, of religion uh, as a political cudgel against the West. He basically wants 
He tells Muslims anywhere they are in the world that you have to obey the laws of those of the countries in which you live. If you don't like that, then leave. You're not. No one is telling you to stay in France or Germany or America if you don't like their laws, right? So he talks like a nationalist. Also, unlike Iran, which is still an Islamist regime that basically uses Islam as a political ideology, he is perfectly happy with the presence of the United States and the hegemony of the United States over the world order and certainly over the Middle Eastern order. Whereas Iran's principal goal, that's what they kind of wake up, uh, you know, talking about and they go to sleep dreaming about, is to expel the United States from the region and to recreate the world in some crazy um, Islamist revolutionary image, you know, in Iranian Khomeinist kind of view of the world. And so, you know, when when you, you know, as Westerners, also whether it's Israel, um, you know, when you look at that, when you look at Saudi Arabia under MBS, you, you have a choice to make. You know, do, do you want to go with someone who is basically pushing his country and the whole region towards a future, which is education and economic competition and nationalism and non, not, no violence, no religion for violence? Or do you want to go with, you know, the old uh, 20th century ideologies of, you know, we hate the West, we want to destroy Israel, we want... Uh, Islam to prevail. We want to conquer the world. You know, for me, there's no, cho- you know, the, the choice is, is very clear, right? I mean, as to where, where we would want to be and who we would want to support. And that's with Saudi Arabia. And so is the question on the table now is just like, what what is the price and is the United States ready to pay it? Um, as a, you know, so from what I'm hearing from both of you all is that, uh, you know, ideologically, there's there's an openness to doing this. There, it's not an, uh, uh, a test of ideas where somebody needs to change their thinking. That MBS is ready to do this, but it's just a question of what is the United States prepared to do to to, to you know to facilitate the deal uh, going forward. I, I, can I unpack that just? To say, I want to push back a little bit on that, Jared, because and 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 reframe because. I also hear it being in Saudi Arabia's interest to normalize. Of course it is. No real ideological barrier from the crown prince to, to go forward. Sort of like a, hey, everybody else got something for it. Why aren't, why don't, why, why won't I get something for it? And I should be getting a big thing for it. Um, is, is that, is that not a way to read this? I mean, is, is this? I, mean, I, Rich, I think that's what I, I think that's what I just said. I, the, the question I have is just, is it a question of what the price is? No, no, no. I know, I know, I, I agree. But why is there a price? Why, why does, why is there need to be such a big price? I, I don't see, I don't see, I don't see it that way. I, I see this as a win-win. Uh, I think that the Saudis understand that, that there are things that have to be overcome uh, from their perspective, right? How do they deal with the rest of the Muslim world? How do they deal with the Palestinian issue? What are the things that they have to worry about? Their security, the nuclear security, their ability to mine their, you know, their their nuclear material, etc. That they have. There, there are things that they want out of this because it's good for Saudi, but it's most probably good for the world as well. And then you I, you have the United States who want to win. They want normalization with Israel out of this. Uh, they want other guarantees from the Saudis around, most probably around them not using Huawei or going with the Chinese. So I actually think that this is more of a negotiation, like a traditional negotiation. And the professor said it before, the, the Saudis are willing to pay for what they're buying. So many other places aren't willing. The Saudis are willing to pay for it. They're willing to step up to the table. They're willing to negotiate, in my opinion, in, in good faith around this. 
but there are obstacles that he has to overcome and the nation have to overcome. And I think that, that I think there's going to be an equal amount of give and take for this to come down, which is why I think it actually can happen under uh, under this president, because they'll be open minded to get something done. And the Saudis will be open minded. You know, we have the four points that the four points that have come out. It's it's the beginning. It's a negotiation. And my prediction is that it actually does happen in a way that everyone says, OK, we left on the table. We left on the table, but we got a win and a win. That's how I see it. That big question then for that, and 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 maybe Professor, the, the question to you is, it's just touched on these these four points that, that have come out that have to do with the security guarantees that that Saudi Arabia wants, and and a big sort of Gordian knot, as it would appear, uh, not just a request for U.S. support for a civil nuclear program, but U.S. support for an enrichment program on Saudi soil. That one seeming to be the real big. Right nut to crack of, of all the demands. Is that truly uh, a proverbial hill to die on uh, for the Saudi leadership enrichment? I mean, if, if you could come up with a whole package of mining and milling and exporting uranium and, and advanced research and development, and, you know, the Israelis have very advanced uh, R&D and in, in nuclear energy uh, applications that could be brought in, you could make a real world-class nuclear energy project program center in Saudi Arabia without enrichment, would that be enough? Is this truly a negotiation where let's put a package together and it doesn't reach that top original demand? Or is that truly going to be, you know, th- this is a red line for the Saudis? Yeah, I, I I don't think it is a red line for them. I think it's an open, it's a kind of an opening a gambit, you know, in a negotiation. I think what really matters to the Saudis more than anything else is uh, regime security and survival, right? So basically what you have are the Iranians who say, you know, America is the great Satan. We want to destroy America. But essentially, they go about wanting to destroy America by attacking Saudi Arabia and, and Israel through proxies, right? So they um, told the Saudis that, you know, should Israel or America attack us, the Iranians, that is, said, um, you know, the first target of our counterattack will be Saudi Arabia. And so the Saudis are extremely vulnerable. And, you know, just to concentrate the mind a bit, you know, Saudi Arabia relies very heavily on desalination, on seawater desalination for its fresh water. And a city like Riyadh, which has seven, close to eight million people now, depends on two pipelines that run from the Persian Gulf on the one side and the Red Sea on the other, desalinating salt water and pumping it to the middle of the country, which is where Riyadh is. That means that, you know, the the, the country and the, and the capital city, as with other cities, extremely vulnerable. You know, you knock out those two pipelines, you would have to immediately evacuate the city because there wouldn't be any water, fresh water for anyone. So... You know, that's the kind of state of vulnerability that the country finds itself in. And the Iranians have perfected um, extremely precise weapons when it comes to targeting and destroying these infrastructure facilities that cannot really easily be protected by swarms of missiles and drones. And so, so that's where the Saudis really care about their security more than anything else. I think enrichment is secondary tertiary, frankly. And that's what they seek from the United States is that kind of protection. I want to just unpack that just a little bit more. Um, So 
because I, I, you said it and I want to just repeat it back to you to make sure it's clear for our listeners. So you don't think the enrichment issue is the red line. That is just a, a piece on the table of the negotiating table that, you know, like in any negotiation, you start off with lots and lots and lots of things. Um, yet I want to come back to something you said uh, about the Palestinian issue. How much do you think that that weighs in uh, on Saudi's ability to normalize with Israel, um, you know, it's it's like some people say it's the red herring in in normalization with Israel that it actually doesn't matter, um, that that people just say it matters, um, but but with Saudi Arabia it, it seems to matter more than with other places. So I'd like to get both of your takes on how much that matters in terms of normalization and what would need to happen in terms of the way Israel deals with the Palestinians in order to give uh, MBS and the and the Saudi court um, what it needs. To, to move normalization forward. I'd like to take the first part of that question and let the professor answer the second part of that question. And that, uh, that is, I believe that it, it does make a difference. I think it's very important to the Saudis. Uh, there's a bit of a bifurcation I found. You have the older generation, most probably still very much part of the, uh, of the royal family that knows differently, thinks differently. And then you have the younger generation who might know less about it or it might be less important to them. Uh, but they, but, his Royal Highness, the Crown Prince, is the custodian of the two holy sites, obviously, the two major holy sites. And these are very, very important things that I, I, I believe he, he and the government takes into consideration. And I believe it'll just be part of an overall negotiation. But it's something that has to, has to be dealt with in one form or another and has to be considered before you can have complete normalization. Where it rates one, two, three or four, I doubt it's number one or two, but I don't know. Uh, but I do know that there has to be some form of solution in the overall solution towards normalization. I've heard it many, many times over. Yeah, I think that um, the way I normally kind of um, think about this issue and, and answer when I'm asked the question is that um, it's clear that for a significant portion of the Saudi population, the question of Palestinians and their rights matters. I think it's the older segment of the population. I think the younger people care less about it than, than the older people do. That's in part because of the education they received and, you know, that they remember things that the younger people don't remember. And you have to recall that something like 65 to 70 percent of the population is under the age of 30 or 35 in this country. So you have this very large pop young population that I think is politically quite different from the older people. Uh, and the Crown Prince knows this. Um, still, it's an issue that matters and can certainly be used against him by his enemies, right? And he does have enemies both within the royal family, but also among Islamists in society. Um, now, the other thing I would say is that the crown prince of Saudi Arabia is a bit like a juggler. At the moment, he's got 10 balls up in the air with, you know, diversification and women's employment and, you know, building all these giga projects and cities and, you know, changing the social structure and social environment in the country. And, you know, there are all these things in putting the Islamists, you know, in their place. And to add the extra ball of normalization with Israel is just perhaps one too many balls up in the air. You know, it's not immediately necessary. It's not like something that has to happen. It can wait five years, 10 years. Um, and it would complicate his life if he added it right now unless he got something really big for it to, that would justify taking it on and then telling his people, you know, look what we got for this. Um, so, so I, I, I and, and when it comes to the really important stuff, which is, you know, um, 
security relations, intelligence communication, that stuff is already happening with Israel, right? I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't need to normalize to get, um, you know, intelligence cooperation and security cooperation. He has all the benefits of, of, of normalization without the headaches that come. That come. I, I, I've, I've, I've heard this argument as well. I, I've always believed that there's an expanded amount of security cooperation, the tech transfers, things like that, that could come with, with normalization. Yet, I'm curious on the business side, this argument has been advanced as well, where there's Israeli VCs going back and forth on American or other foreign passports. There's executives going back and forth. There's no true normalized commercial relationship, but it's kind of like, you know, with cutouts, a commercial relationship of sorts. What does normalization, in your view, get the Saudi kingdom, get Vision 2030 that MBS is not getting today without it? So I've actually uh, spent months putting together a position paper um, overlaying Vision 2030, the objectives of Vision 2030, with the tech, the ingenuity, the ability of the Israeli ecosystem, not how to make money or how to invest, but actually how to get the Saudis to where they want to go faster uh, using Israeli innovation. And actually, it's quite stunning that in a number of the areas, in particular in education, in healthcare, in other areas that are most important in Saudi, how leveraging what Israel has to offer, again, mostly from technology, but also from entrepreneurship, from vision, uh, from kind of seeing around the corner. You know, Israelis have done such a remarkable job at figuring out what's next. Let's just use Gen AI as an example where, you know, now, you know, uh, just the other day it came out, Sam Altman came out, he's going to do something with the Israelis. And within three to six months, they'll become leaders in that space. And, and I think it's that ingenuity and some of the past experience that really will help 2030, uh, the vision of 2030, get there a lot a lot more rapidly. So that, that's one way that I see that uh, Israel could play uh, a bigger role than she does right now. And the second thing I'd say is there is, as the professor said, there is G to G, um, but the things that really matter are P to P, people to people, and normalization and peace comes top down and bottoms up. And I think that there's more and more interaction uh, Surely in the Jewish community, that's never been an, an issue, but even in the Israeli community in Saudi. And you see more and more uh, Israeli businesses who are doing business in Saudi, but not directly. And it's it's a slow process. And you can see how the Saudis are interested in it and how it benefits. But it's, as the professor said, it has to be a big prize. It has to be worth it. And the way I would approach it is how can we, how could Israel, how can the Israeli ingenuity community get Vision 2030 to market, if you will, more rapidly? Yes. What, what, one, one more question for you. I know you've been traveling back and forth a lot, um, not just on on business issues, but but also on Jewish heritage uh, issues and historical sites. Uh, one historic city in particular uh, where the Jewish community had, had a legendary uh, uh, moment era. Um, t- talk a little bit about your work there, uh, about the history and what it means that the Saudi kingdom is opening this up and wants to have something about its Jewish heritage on display. So much of what I've found in general in Saudi, and I've been, as you know, many times uh, in general in Saudi, but really in particular in the area of Al-Ullah and Khaybar and Tema, uh, is that everything there is about how to meld the heritage, the culture, the religion, the passions, the history 
of not just the Jews and the Christians and the Muslims, the Nabataeans, but really the many, many generations of people who've come through that region. And there so happens to be particular interest in the Jewish heritage there because they were very, very active in the fourth century, the fifth century, the sixth century, and Tema, even you can read about Tema in the in the in the time of the Talmud. And so many of the things that I see there really just exemplify everything else that I'm seeing in Riyadh and Jeddah and other places in Saudi is how do we look forward? How do we become cultural leaders? How do we bring people together and make this world a better place? But using the, the unique culture and heritage sites that um, that Saudi has, uh, in particular in, in the Alula Khaibar region. So it's been very, very motivating for me. I'm very passionate about it. And it really, for me, tells it's a piece of the most important part of the whole story of Saudi uh, going forward. Bernie, I just wanted to ask you, you have a unique sort of heritage uh, and wondered if you could share a little bit about your uh, your upbringing, your heritage, your, your half Lebanese, right? And uh, and in Jewish. And so tell us a little bit about that and how that impacts your work that you that you do in this area. Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm um, my father is Lebanese and my mother is um, an Ashkenazi from Poland, um, uh, American national. Um, and uh, but I grew up and I was born and raised in Lebanon and I experienced the first nine years of the Civil War uh, there. And um, the Lebanese Civil War plays a very important role for, in, in a formative role in my life because I saw how religion was used um, and deployed for political ends and political, political purposes. And in particular, I also saw the rise of Islamism and political Islam. And so I, I became very curious about, uh, about the relationship between religion and politics. And I, you know, that's what spurred me to become a scholar of Islam and of the Middle East. Um, I think that, you know, uh, having had this experience from Lebanon and having lived in Arabia, I've lived in Yemen for a couple of years and also in Saudi for a couple of years. Um, and given the languages that I know and so on, you know, it gives me a perspective that I hope is more original than most people that I can see many different sides to, to, to a, a situation. Um, so when it comes to Saudi or for that matter, Yemen, I mean, I, I can, I can, imagine how they look at the world and how they think of the world, not just, you know, so I'm not just an American looking at them, but I can kind of stand in their shoes and look out at the world from their perspective. And, you know, that means hopefully that I have greater sympathy and maybe even empathy for, um, you know, for, for different people um, in, in this region. In, in particular, I think also something I would like to highlight about Saudi Arabia is that, you know, for the longest time, it was the kind of the bet noir. You know, it, everyone, it was the easiest country to hate. Um, you know, there were people who'd never been colonized. They were extremely rich because of oil. Uh, they promoted political Islam. They um, refused um, to accommodate the West in many ways and so on. So, you know, a lot of anti-Arab and anti-Muslim sentiment gets directed at Saudi Arabia. I think unfairly, by the way. Uh, I know it's unfair. And so I, I, I'm just delighted to see the country opening up and I see the country coming to terms with both its own history, but also with its place in the world. And one of the things that was just mentioned earlier about um, their heritage. So, you know, it's important to know that, you know, when human beings, you know, originally 
as you know, we're told, uh, you know, came out of Africa and moved out into the rest of the world, they kind of moved through Arabia. And so Arabia is in a way a cradle of the great migrations of humanity um, th from there to the rest of the world. And so they want to, I mean, the Saudis want to highlight the importance of Arabia as a crossroads, but also as a bridge to, to the rest of the world. Um, and I, I think that's a, just a, a fascinating, a much more interesting and productive way to think of, of the country and what it has to offer than just it being kind of a monolithic identity that is only focused on a particular interpretation of Islam. Um, I, I think what they're trying to do now is something that, you know, can benefit everyone. And the fact that they're tolerant of Jews, but also others is just a, is a wonderful thing. And something that I would never have predicted uh, 10 years ago would, would have, would happen by the way. So what we're seeing is truly kind of spectacular. Uh, and, you know, because the country did not, was not on this trajectory uh, 10 years ago. That's, that is, that is fantastic. And something that, you know, frankly, we, we wouldn't get from, from other observers. So I'm going to ask one uh, of our lightning round questions. Uh, and then uh, we're going to, we're going to wrap this up. But so I would like to ask both of you, your favorite places to visit in Saudi Arabia. Oh, for me, that's easy. Khaybar. I've been to Alula. I've been to Alula eight, nine times. I've been to Khaybar four times. And two weeks ago, my first trip to Tema. That part of the world for me, and I travel extensively, is, is most probably one of my favorite places in the whole world, let alone in Saudi. Right. So with me, you're going to get a much more recondite uh, answer, like a much more specialist answer. So, um, I, I mean, I've been to every corner of Saudi Arabia. Um, there's a there's a particular town called Al Ghat, which is at the intersection of the Great Desert and the mountain. Uh, there's a mountain that runs sort of uh, across uh, Central Arabia called Tuaik, and it's it's this gorgeous place um, uh, where I have friends. But the thing I want to say actually about about Saudi Arabia, which is probably true for any country, it's the people that makes it very special. I, I've made some truly wonderful and deep connections to people there um and incredibly hospitable incredibly kind people um and so i i, I love i love being in al Ghat. i love najran najran is a great place that's on the border between saudi and yemen uh of course al ula is spectacular i mean it's just a breathtaking sight um and and uh, and the desert is just magical i mean there are places in the saudi desert that are truly incredible uh, to, to see, including the empty quarter, of course. But I would strongly urge and recommend everyone to go and visit. Okay, and my last quick lightning round, and then then we'll we'll, we'll wrap this up. Uh, Yitz, people may not know, or maybe they do finally recognize your name from all those JI Daily Kickoffs. You're not just Yitz the Saudi expert. You're Yitz JI's wine connoisseur as well. Uh, what is your favorite Israeli wine? And will there be a kosher winery coming soon to Saudi Arabia? Uh, and then for for the professor, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be kosher, but I'm curious, as you have traveled throughout the Middle East where wine is served, who has the best wine in the Middle East? Yet you first. <laughs> so first, most probably my favorite Israeli wine is the Yar Yatir. Uh, it's made in the desert, which actually should give me a better answer for, for the second question you answer, you asked. Uh, but it's it's uh, it's in the Atir Forest, and it's a stunning wine there. 
uh, Cabernet, Sauvignon, uh, any vintage you can get is, is most probably all around my favorite wine in Israel. And do I think I'll be making wine in the Saudi desert? Here's how I'll answer you. The first time <coughs> that I went to Alula, um, uh, I had a, a great honor of meeting Prince Bader, who's the governor of the whole Alula region, among other things, that he's the minister of culture. And the dialogue was around me being able to buy a farm uh, in Chaibar because uh, I wouldn't want to say repatriate, I don't want to get in trouble, uh, but to actually pay for uh, pay for a farm there. And he said he's more than willing to change any law about any foreigner having ownership of a farm in Chaibar, and I'd be the first one that he he would allow to do that. So if that were to happen, I can see late in the late afternoons, maybe some kosher wine being made there, but not as an official policy, is my guess. That's great, Professor. Yeah, I mean Saudi. By the way, the grapes uh, in Taif, which is a town uh, high up on the um, in the mountains above Mecca. It's very famous for its grapes, and so um, it, it, there are places in Saudi Arabia that could potentially become, um, you know, produce great wines, uh, and maybe one day that will happen again. Um, my my knowledge of wines is confined mostly to Lebanon, uh, where I think we have uh, great wines, and I plan to start a winery there soon because I have a farm uh, in in the mountains. Um, so, you know, I hope to learn a, a, a lot more about this. But Lebanese wines are not bad. Some of them are excellent, actually. All right. Well, so Jared, you and I are going to need to go get a farm. Everybody's getting a farm somewhere in the Middle East. So we're going to go get a farm as well. And then we can all just exchange our our, our farm stories. Yitz uh, Bomb, Bernie Hakel, thank you so much for joining Jewish Insider Podcast. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you like the show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because that's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Jewish Insiders Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.